0: Well, hey everybody, I'm Adam Schell, the pastor at Melbourne Heights, and welcome to our sermon podcast. In this episode of our podcast, we are continuing on in our sermon series called Villains. And all throughout this series, we are exploring some of the stories of the most infamous villains that we meet in the Bible. And we're exploring these stories to learn from their mistakes so that you don't become the villain in your story. Well, in today's episode, we're going to be exploring the story of someone who should have been one of the greatest heroes in Israel's history. And we're going to see what ends up making him a villain in the story instead. So let's get right into this episode sermon. So over the last couple of weeks here at Melbourne Heights, we have been exploring the stories of some of the most infamous villains in the Bible. And we've been exploring these stories for a reason. We've been exploring these stories to learn from the mistakes that these villains made because we know that you don't want to become the villain in your own story. You don't want to become the villain in your own story. So by exploring the mistakes that these villains made, we can learn how to not be the villain in our own stories. But before we dig in today and we start talking about the biblical villain we're going to be exploring this morning, there's another story that I want to tell you first. And this is a story of a man named Hans Westergaard. But who exactly is Hans Westergaard? Well, Hans is a prince in the kingdom of the Southern Isles. But saying that Hans Westergaard is a prince is a little bit like saying this guy whose picture we're going to put up on the screen, his name's Patrick Leahy, and saying that he is a movie star. Now, for those of you that don't know, Patrick Leahy has actually appeared in five different Batman films. So he has shared the silver screen with folks like Val Kilmer and George Clooney and Christian Bale as well as Ben Affleck. But Patrick Leahy is far from being a movie star. The truth of the matter is that Patrick Leahy is actually much better known in the world of politics than he is in the world of entertainment. And that's because Patrick Leahy is actually currently the U.S. Senator's president pro Tempore, And what that means is that Patrick Leahy is currently third in line to serve as president of the United States behind the vice president and the speaker of the House. The funny thing is, that actually means that Patrick Leahy has a much better chance of becoming president of the United States than Hans Westergaard has of becoming king of the Southern Isles. And that's because even though Hans is a prince, he is actually the 13th child of the king and the queen of the Southern Isles. So Hans has 12 older brothers that will become king before he does. Now, for any of you who have older siblings, then you can probably relate to Hans at least a little bit. Hans grew up feeling like his parents never had any time for him. And as a matter of fact, at one point, his father even openly admitted that he didn't care if his youngest son attended family functions or royal gatherings. But if being neglected and ignored by his parents wasn't bad enough, Hans was flat out picked on and bullied and tormented by his older brothers. Now, I've got two older brothers myself, so I can relate to Hans in this regard, because I got picked on a lot. So as a kid, I suffered everything from name-calling to noogies, but my torment was nothing compared with what Hans Westergaard endured at the hands of his brothers. Because they didn't just pick on him, they didn't just tease him, they flat out physically and emotionally abused Hans. But in spite of being neglected by his parents and being bullied by his older brothers... Hans actually turns out to be uh, smart and charismatic and observant, a handsome, a chivalrous prince. And it doesn't take long before Hans meets a kindred soul when he is attending a royal coronation in a nearby kingdom. It's at this coronation that he meets a princess named Anna. And Anna just happens to feel like she has been neglected and ignored by her family as well. Well, as is wont to happen, the prince and the princess, they hit it off. And it doesn't take long before they are announcing their official engagement. And when they get married, Hans will go from being 13th in line to be king of the Southern Isles to being second in line to become the king of his bride-to-be's kingdom. And it looks like Hans might just be the heroic kind of king that his bride-to-be's kingdom, the kingdom of Arendelle, might just need in the future. And in a lot of ways, Hans' story reminds me of the biblical story that I want to start out sharing with you today. Now, the story that we're going to be looking at to start out today comes from the book of 1 Samuel. But the book of 1 Samuel is actually the first book in a series of books that tell us the entire history of Israel's monarchy from the beginning to the end. So when the book of 1 Samuel, the first in the series starts, the people of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, they don't have a king. So we're going to start out today by looking at the story of how Israel gets their first king. So let's take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 9 together. We're going to start reading in verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, there was a wealthy man from the tribe of Benjamin named Kish. He was the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite. He had a son named Saul, who was a handsome young man. No one in Israel Was more handsome than Saul, and he stood head and shoulders above everyone else. So, as this passage begins, we meet a man named Saul. And we're told inside of this passage that Saul is a handsome and he is a tall guy. He stands head and shoulders above everyone else in all of Israel. And it's not going to be long before Saul is anointed to become Israel's first king. It happens just a few verses later at the beginning of chapter 10. So here's part of the story of how, of how Saul becomes king in Israel. We'll see it play out in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. This is what it says. It says, Samuel took a jar of oil and he poured it over Saul's head and kissed him. The Lord hereby anoints you, leader of his people Israel, Samuel said. You will rule the Lord's people and save them from the power of the enemies who surround them. So as the prophet Samuel anoints Saul king in this passage, we reach a pivotal moment in Israel's history. This is a moment that the people of Israel have been begging for, for a long, long time. And now the people of Israel finally have a king. And it looks like Samuel has anointed a good king. And I'm not just saying that because Saul is described as being tall and handsome, which are two words that describe me pretty well, too. That was the reaction I expected to that. Thank you very much. No, I'm saying that because of what we learn about Saul between the time we're introduced to him at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 9 and the time he's anointed in 1 Samuel chapter 10. In those verses, we learn a lot about the kind of person that Saul is. We learn that Saul is the kind of person who is obedient to his father. We learn that Saul is the kind of person who is willing to take on any task, any job, even if it's the types of roles that are usually assigned to servants or slaves. And we find out that Saul is the kind of guy who cares about all of life in Israel, from the great prophet Samuel all the way down to the livestock that are out grazing in the countrysides of Israel. So it looks like Samuel has anointed a good king. It looks like the people of Israel have that heroic leader that they'll need to lead them into their future together. But we all know that sometimes looks can be deceiving. And sometimes the hero turns out to be the villain. Sometimes the hero turns out to be the villain. That's exactly what happens in the story of Hans Westergaard as it plays out in the the Disney movie Frozen. So as that movie begins, we're introduced to Hans. And like I said, Hans seems to be a smart, observant, charismatic, chivalrous kind of guy. But as the story continues to play out, by the end of the movie, we find out that Hans is nothing more than a power-hungry sociopath who's willing to do whatever it takes in order for him to become king. Now remember what I told you about him just a couple of minutes ago. Hans was 13th in line to become king of the Southern Isles, so there was absolutely no chance that that was ever going to happen. But Hans wants to become king, so he decides he's going to take matters into his own hands, and he comes up with a plan that will allow him to become king, and what he's going to do is he's going to essentially marry onto the royal throne in another kingdom which is why he gets engaged to Princess Anna in Arendelle. And from there, Hans is willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that he becomes king of Arendelle, including committing regicide, which is a fancy term that refers to killing a king or queen. So as the movie Frozen begins, it looks like maybe Hans is going to be the hero of the story, the kind of prince that can save the kingdom when they're in need. But by the end of the story, Hans turns out to be the biggest villain in it he becomes the villain in his own story same thing's going to happen for the first king of Israel Saul who starts out and looks like he is the exact kind of king that the nation the kingdom of Israel needs the kind of king who's going to be a heroic leader leading the people into the future but he ends up becoming the villain of his story but how exactly does that happen how do you go from being a great heroic king to become a villain. Well, in Saul's case, there are a couple of stories that play out in the book of 1 Samuel that show us how he becomes the villain in his story. And the first one of these stories takes place in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And in this story, King Saul is getting ready to lead his army, his soldiers into battle against Israel's fiercest enemy, the Philistines. But before Sam, But before Saul is able to lead them into battle against the Philistines Saul knows that he first needs to humble himself before God by offering sacrifices to God and by seeking God's favor before he leads his soldiers into battle but here's the thing Saul's not allowed to offer these sacrifices for himself he needs Samuel who is not just a prophet but he's also the high priest to offer these sacrifices on Saul's behalf So right now, let's take a look at how this story plays out. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 13, where we'll start reading in verse 8. Here's what it says. It says, he, that is Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and his troops began to desert. So Saul ordered, bring me the entirely burnt offerings and the well-being sacrifices. Then he offered the entirely burnt offerings. The very moment that Saul finished offering up the entirely burnt offering, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to meet him and welcome him. But Samuel said, what have you done? I saw that my troops were deserting, Saul replied. You hadn't arrived by the appointed time, and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash. I thought the Philistines were about to march against me at Gilgal, and I haven't yet sought the Lord's favor. So I took control of myself and offered the entirely burnt offering. How stupid of you to have broken the commands the Lord your God gave you, Samuel told Saul. The Lord would have established your rule over Israel forever, but now your rule won't last. So in the story that we just read, Saul is preparing to lead his army into battle against Israel's fiercest enemies, the Philistines, But even before the battle begins, Saul has soldiers that are deserting his army. And why does Saul have soldiers that are deserting his army? Well, they're deserting because the the soldiers in Israel's army, they don't think that God is going to be on their side as they enter into battle. And if God's not on their side when they go into battle, well, that means that God has to be on the other army's side. So soldiers are deserting Israel's army because they don't want to die in battle. So at this point, Saul does the only thing that he can think to do. Saul decides to take matters into his own hands and that he is going to offer these sacrifices before God to gain God's favor as they go into battle. And when you think about it, it makes pretty good sense why Saul does what he does in this story. It's because Saul knows that if his soldiers continue to flee from him, that Israel's army is going to fail. And if Israel's army fails, then the kingdom of Israel is going to fall. And if the kingdom of Israel falls, then the people of Israel cannot be who God called them to be. And that is a blessing to all nations. So Saul does the only thing he can think to do to keep his army intact, to keep his kingdom intact, so that they can be who God made them to be. But the problem with that is that Saul was not allowed to be the one to offer these sacrifices. The Levitical law is very clear on this fact. The only people who are allowed to offer sacrifices to God are priests. And even though Saul is king of Israel, he's not a priest. So when Saul offers the burnt offerings before God, Saul does the wrong thing. Now Saul does the wrong thing for seemingly the right reason, but it's still the wrong thing. Doing the wrong thing for the right reason, is still wrong. Doing the wrong thing for the right reason is still wrong. And this isn't the only time that Saul is going to find himself in the wrong. It's going to happen to him again a couple of chapters later in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Now this time it happens after Saul has led the people of Israel, the the army of Israel, into battle, and they have successfully defeated a people called the Amalekites. But before this battle even began, God gave Saul a very specific command. God told Saul, when your army defeats the Amalekites, you are not allowed to take any plunder from the Amalekites. But Saul lets his soldiers plunder the Amalekites anyway. So let's take a look at exactly what happens in 1 Samuel 15, where we'll start reading in verse 10. Here's what it says. It said, then the Lord's word came to Samuel. I regret making Saul king because he has turned away from following me and hasn't done what I said. Samuel is upset at this, and he prayed to the Lord all night long. Samuel got up early in the morning to meet Saul and was told. Saul went to Carmel where he is setting up a monument for himself. Then he left and went down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached Saul, Saul greeted him, saying, The Lord bless you. I have done what the Lord said. Then what, Samuel asked, is the bleeding of sheep in my ear and the mooing of cattle that I hear. They were taken from the Amalekites, Saul said, because the troops spared the best sheep and cattle in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. The rest was placed under the ban. Samuel then said to Saul, Enough. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Even if you think you are insignificant, Aren't you the leader of Israel's tribes? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. The Lord sent you on a mission instructing you, go and put the sinful Amalekites under the band. Fight against them until you have wiped them out. Why didn't you obey the Lord? You did evil in the Lord's eyes when you tore into the plunder. But I did obey the Lord, Saul protested to Samuel. I went on the mission the Lord sent me on. I captured Agag, the Amalekite king, and I put the Amalekites under the ban. Yes, the troops took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the very best items placed under the ban, but in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So once again in this passage, Saul does the wrong thing for seemingly the right reason. This time Saul allows his soldiers to take plunder from the Amalekites so that they can offer those sacrifices to God, even though God explicitly told Saul not to plunder the Amalekites. But it seems okay because Saul is letting his people worship God. But once again, doing the wrong thing for the right reason is still wrong. Doing the wrong thing for the right reason is still wrong. And it's because of this. It's because Saul seems to do the wrong things for the right reasons that he becomes the villain inside of his story. So if we want to make sure that we don't become the villain in our stories, we need to learn from Saul's mistakes. We need to try to understand why Saul made the decisions that Saul made. We need to try to figure out what led him to do these wrong things to begin with. So let's start by talking about that first story. The story where Saul offers these sacrifices to God that he's not allowed to make. Now, Saul says that the reason why he does this, or or seemingly the reason why he makes these sacrifices, is because his army is deserting him. So he offers these sacrifices to earn God's favor to keep his army together. Now, that doesn't seem like a bad thing. But there's a problem with that way of thinking. And that's that if Saul was really concerned about earning God's favor to keep his army together, he could have gone about things in a completely different way. Now, if you were really paying attention to the story uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, where Saul offers the sacrifice to God, it sounds like Saul is standing there in Gilgal, counting down the minutes on his clock until the prophet Samuel is supposed to arrive. But Samuel, he doesn't get there right on time. Maybe Samuel got stuck in traffic. Maybe he forgot that to set his clock back an hour. Who knows what's going on? But Samuel's not there when Saul expects him to be there. And it's at that moment, that instant when Samuel's not there on time, that Saul takes matters into his own hands, and he goes and he offers these sacrifices to God. But if you were paying attention, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 10, we're told this specifically. It says, The very moment that Saul finished offering up the entirely burnt offering Samuel arrived. So it's not like Samuel was running days behind schedule. As soon as Saul finished offering the burnt offerings, Samuel shows up. So if Saul was really concerned with just gaining God's favor and keeping his soldiers together, all he had to do was wait a little bit longer for Samuel to arrive. So this first story, it's not really about Saul trying to gain God's favor and trying to keep his army together. This first story actually reveals us what Saul's greatest character flaw is. And that character flaw is that Saul thinks he always knows best. Saul thinks he always knows best. So Saul doesn't care what the law says he is and isn't allowed to do. Saul doesn't care that he is prohibited from offering sacrifices to God because he's not a priest. The only thing that matters to Saul is that he knows best, so he's going to do what he thinks he needs to do. And we see the same character flaw play out again in the last story that we read today. Now in that last story, Saul allows his soldiers to plunder the Amalekites, even though God specifically forbids it to happen, because Saul says he wants his soldiers to be able to offer sacrifices to God. But that's not what God wants at all. So inside of this story, once again, Saul shows us that Saul thinks he always knows best. And in this case, Saul shows us that he thinks he knows better than God. Saul thinks he knows better than God. You're in danger of becoming the villain in your story if you feel the same way that Saul felt. If you think that you know better than God, you will become the villain of your story. If you think you know better than God, you will become the villain of your own story. But that's not the way that any of us feel. We don't think that we could ever think that we know better than God. But the reality is, it's this belief that plays out all the time. I mean, in the stories about Saul that we've read, Saul is given very clear, very specific instructions. The first story he's told, you can't offer sacrifices to God. The second story he's told, do not plunder the Amalekites, but he does it anyway, in spite of what God commanded him. Well, we do this exact same thing all the time. We read in the Bible. We read in the Bible where God tells us that we are supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves, But we turn to God and say, God, you don't know my neighbor's. My neighbors aren't lovable. So we say, God, we know what you said, but we know better than you do. Or when God tells us, when Jesus tells us specifically what we need to do to be one of his disciples, when he says that if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself daily and take up your cross, well, we show that we think we know better than God when we say, God, have you had to wear one of these stupid face masks They make me hot, they make me sweaty, I'm getting acne underneath of them. These are horrible. So I know I'm supposed to wear it to help other people out, but I'm not willing to deny myself to do that. So you think, you know better than God. Or when God tells us that part of what it means to follow him is that we need to stand up for the oppressed. How often do we turn back to God and say, God, I've had it tough in my life too. Somebody needs to stand up for me. Or when God tells us that we are to take care of the poor. How many of us stand up and say, God, I've worked hard for what I have, and I'm going to take care of myself first. We do what Saul did all the time. We hear what God tells us we're supposed to do. The way that God wants us to live our lives, and we turn to God and we say, that's nice, but I know better than you. So if you don't want to be the villain of your story, you have to know that God knows best. If you don't want to become the villain in your story, you have to know that God knows best. And you have to be willing to do what God calls you to do. To do what God tells you to do. To do what God commands you to do. Now, that's something that Saul was not willing to do. Saul always thought that he knew best, and he was going to do whatever he thought was right. But what about you? It's the question that I want you to ask yourself this week, because you're standing in front of the bathroom mirror in the morning and at night. I want you to think about this. Do you think you know better than God? Do you think that you know better than God? Or do you believe that God really knows best? Because if you think you know better than God, you're going to be the villain in your story. But if you realize that God always knows best, then you have the chance to be the hero that God wants you to be. Let's pray together. God, as we come to you in this word of prayer, we should all feel a little convicted today. Because God, even though we look at a story like Saul's story and think we could never make the decisions that he made, when he deliberately disobeyed what you told him about offering sacrifices and plundering an enemy, he still did it because he thought he knew better than you. God, we do the same thing all the time when we know what you have told us to do, who you have called us to be, but we ignore it. We do it when we don't love our neighbors, when we aren't willing to deny ourselves to follow you. We do it when we refuse to take care of those who are poor or oppressed. We do it all the time. So God, convict us, challenge us, help us to see those times, those moments, those areas in our life where we think we know better than you. And God, show us that we're wrong. Show us that you always know best. Help us to always do what you want us to do. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, it's Adam again, and I just want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of our sermon podcast. And I hope that this episode has challenged you to think about who really knows best. Are you living your life like God knows best? Or are you living your life like you always know best? Because if you act like God isn't the one that knows best, if you act like you always know best, you are going to end up being the villain in your story. Well, in our next episode, we're going to be finishing up the sermon series on villains, and we're going to be exploring the story of another person named Saul. So we hope that you'll come back and join us when that next episode drops next Tuesday morning. If you subscribe to our podcast, that episode will be sent straight to your favorite podcasting app. And while you're in that app, make sure that you leave us a rating and review to help spread the word of our podcast to other people. And don't forget, you don't have to wait until next Tuesday to be a part of our services or to hear one of our sermons. You're welcome to join us every Sunday morning online on our church's website at mhbclouisville.com slash live and worship with us. We would love to have you with us. We worship at 1030 a.m. Eastern Time. Well, until next time, I hope that you guys have a great week. I'll be praying for you, and we'll see you back here soon for another sermon podcast.